Again, we celebrate the Lord's table, and again, I want to draw your attention to something that I guess I hadn't really thought much about before, but I realized that there's a, uh, there's a lack of attention and understanding to what we call, what the Bible calls, the new covenant. It, is, it deserves greater attention. It, it deserves a greater sense of focus. And so uh, these times we've gathered here, which I will argue is a celebration of the new covenant, ought to be done with understanding. We ought to understand what we're doing. And, uh, and so that's been my purpose. If you were to ask, why should I pay attention? Why can't I just doze off? Um, I, I hope to conclude a few remarks. I won't be that long. A few remarks so that uh, you really understand how important it is to have um, what I would call a new covenant lens on. In other words, those of us who wear glasses, this is the time to put, particularly when you're reading your Bible, to have a new covenant lens uh, focusing on God's Word. And I'll explain that more. <clears throat> because God's Word, and this is an imperfect metaphor, but God's Word is like a flower. We, we live in a time right now, even despite the heat and the drought, where, where people are, uh, have wonderful flower gardens, I notice, in the yards. The Bible, the revelation of God, is like a flower. In the beginning, you see just the early stages of something. I often refer to it as embryonic. It, the early stages of something developing, developing and as the the Bible unfolds itself, the flower takes on greater beauty and perfection and glory so that the new covenant becomes the, the, the flower of the gospel, the flower of truth. And all the stages in the Bible that are heading in that direction are all part of that beautiful flower that we get to rejoice in. I said the last time we met under this topic, I said that a working definition of the new covenant is this, and I'll say it again. The new covenant is the Father's unconditional promises that accompany salvation that were purchased by Jesus Christ and are applied by the Holy Spirit to be received by faith alone in Christ alone. Notice the Trinitarian participation in the New Covenant. The unconditional promises come from the Father that accompany salvation, those promises came at a cost, a cost to the life and death of Jesus Christ. 
and they can only be applied by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and they are only for those who have faith alone in Christ alone. Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. It's going to be one of those messages where you're going to need your Bible and need to run around with me a little bit. Matthew 26, verse 26. Matthew 26, verse 26. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus said, this is the blood of the covenant. Other translations read, this is the new covenant in my blood. So you see, in fact, when we gather on a regular basis to participate in the Lord's table, we are, in fact, celebrating the promises of the new covenant. It's a, it's a time to reflect and embrace these promises that were once and for all given to all who believe. At this time, when we gather at the Lord's table, we're reminded of two things. One is the tremendous cost that it was for us to embrace these promises. It was the cost of the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, his death for us. And we're also rem reminded of how great the promises are in another day, in another world, in another mindset, if a person were to look at the promises of the new covenant, they would be astounded and say, I can't believe that to be true. I just can't believe that to be true. They are so great and precious, as the Apostle Peter would say. And the question I want to raise and answer this morning is, we know there's other covenants in the Bible. Even those who have been new to the Christian faith have heard of other covenants in the Bible, the covenants of Noah or David or Moses and so on. What relationship does this new covenant have with those other covenants? It's important, I believe, for us not to see that the new covenant is a separate description of a relationship over here, and it's separate from all the rest. 
that would not be helpful. It would not be encouraging. So I want to explain what I mean by that and invite you to turn with your Bibles open to the book of Joshua. And I'm just using this as an example this morning. Joshua chapter 21. give you a minute to get there. Joshua chapter 21 and verse 43. Joshua 21 verse 43. The scriptures read this way. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers. Who are their fathers? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. Notice verse 44. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he has sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. And can you, if you're a Bible marker, could you mark this or remember to do it sometime? Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed all came to pass. The promises of God to Israel to inhabit and live in the promised land as their own possession, free from enemies and rest, came to pass. Not one promise failed. But then we got an issue. I want you to go all the way to the New Testament, to Hebrews chapter 4. Pastor Josh is just loving me as I do this little mini-series on the New Covenant because I'm stepping all over Hebrews for him. Without a word of regret. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 8. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Now, the most basic reading of those two passages that I just read to you is Joshua gave the people rest, and then you go to Hebrews, and the writer to Hebrews says Joshua didn't give the people's rest. That's the basic interpretation. As Christians, we don't believe the Bible contradicts itself. 
If the Bible contradicts itself, you and I might as well just stop right now and go home, get into our shorts, and enjoy the day. We deny the fact that the Bible contradicts itself. Did Joshua give them rest? Did God give them rest, or did he not? And to fast-track the answer, the solution is simply this. The Bible is talking about two different kinds of rest. There was a physical occupation and ownership of the promised land with a physical rest from enemies, but there was still a rest for God's people yet to be uncovered and introduced. Dr. John MacArthur says, correctly I would argue, the rest spoken of here in Hebrews is not a physical rest. You see, in the keeping with the theme of Hebrews, the author consistently takes events from the Old Testament that are physical in nature and shows us that they were actually types or foreshadows or they were signposts pointing to a greater reality. Am I going too fast? Because people take a year of study at colleges for this stuff, and you're getting it in a few minutes. The point of the author of Hebrews is to show is that all the events in the Old Testament were simply sign pointers to the fulfillment that would be accomplished by Jesus Christ in the New Covenant. So when Joshua took the people of Israel into the land and they inhabited it, possessed it, rested, it was God fulfilled all his promises. But there was yet a rest not spoken of in Joshua that was yet to come for the people of God. You have your Bibles open to Hebrews. Turn to chapter 11. I'll give you a hint of what I'm talking about. Chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He went out not knowing where he was going, by faith, he, he went to live in the land of promise as a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. But notice verse 10. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. The author of Hebrews is saying to us, that when the patriarchs inhabited the land of Israel, those who had faith in the promised Messiah, those who were part of the godly seed, even when they landed in 
what we know today as Israel, as Palestine, when their feet touched that, those who are a godly seed knew that this wasn't going to be the finished product. They were looking for a city whose maker is God, a city not made with hands. You know, you have that playoff between the physical and the spiritual. In fact, we read in verse 16 of chapter 11, all of them believed that. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. Here's one example and if I could just use my sanctified imagination for a moment, where the patriarchs went into the land of promise, defeated the enemies, said, all that God promised us has now arrived. But in the hearts of those who had faith said, no, we're not. We're not home yet. <laughs> there's, a, there's, there's a better city. There's a heavenly city. There's... There's, there's more yet to come. This isn't the final journey. Do you understand that? Do you understand that playoff in the Scripture is something that was physically real and acquired in the Old Testament still had a further fulfillment to take place under Christ in the New Covenant? That's the point I'm making. The New Covenant that we're talking about is actually the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Of course, Paul picks that up in Galatians chapter 3 when he says, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. He does not say to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. My point is that the Abrahamic covenant where God says, I will bless you, I will bless all the nations through you, and through you will come a seed that will bless all the world, the fulfillment of that covenant was the new covenant. If time would allow, I would show you, but I'll do it briefly. The fact is the New Covenant is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament covenants. God made a covenant with Noah and told Noah that he would preserve the earth. God told Noah that life would be preserved on planet earth. In the New Covenant we see that earth is not only going to preserve, be preserved for time, but that earth will be remade and it will be an eternal earth forever in the new heavens and new earth. Do you see how the new covenant fulfills the promise of God keeping his promise of preserving life on earth? Paul said in Romans 8, 
that creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, second to our ultimate salvation and being with Christ is the entire earth will be set free from sin and it will become an eternal place for God's people. There's the Noahic covenant being fulfilled in the new covenant. The law of Moses, the covenant of Moses was fulfilled in Christ. That's even clearer. Romans 10 says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The command to obey the law perfectly or you will die was fulfilled entirely in Christ Jesus. The Davidic covenant, oh, I'm sure you know this, was fulfilled in Jesus. God told David that a son of his would sit on the throne eternally. Now, someone back then should have stopped and said, how's that going to work? Because this son has to be perfectly obedient. And how is it going to work eternally? Well, the angel came to Mary and said, Behold, you will conceive and bear a son. His name will be called Jesus. He will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. So again, the new covenant is in fact the fulfillment of all the, old, all the biblical covenants. Every single covenant in the Bible ultimately points to the work of Christ in redemption for his people. A lady by the name of Whitney Woolward wrote this, and I, I couldn't say this better. I, I love it. I'm going to quote her verbatim. And I quote, Do you see now how the covenants progressively build upon one another, forming a backbone of sorts to the redemptive story? God preserved the world through Noah. He initiated redemption through Abraham, formed a special people through Israel, promised a shepherd king through David, and then fulfilled all his covenantal promises through Christ. With each covenant, God promises and plans to save the world through the seed of a woman, and it becomes clearer and clearer until we finally see that redemption can only come through, Christ, through King Jesus. You say to me, Pastor Jim, why is that important? Why is that important for me this morning to know that? Let me give you four reasons. First of all, if you understand the covenantal structure of the Bible, all culminating and being fulfilled in the new covenant, it will help you understand the story of the Bible. The entire storyline of the Bible could be marked at covenantal junctures. There's chapters in a book ending with the final chapter, the glorious chapter, the coming of Jesus Christ, and the inauguration of the new covenant. I'm sure there's many people that pick up a Bible, especially as new Christians, and go, how do I make sense of all this? 
I read this book and then this book and then this book. How do I make sense? Well, the covenantal structure of the Bible gives us the story of the Bible. It tells us that God made a promise to Eve that from her offspring would come someone who would step on the head of a serpent. It promises that through Abraham, a chosen people would be called out, and that people would become the nation that give birth to the Messiah. And the entire story of that nation is a story of God interceding and stepping into their story to make sure that his son, in fact, is born. It's also a story of failure after failure after failure of people failing to keep the Mosaic law. The covenant of David tells us more specifically who this person is that would come. And so that as baby Jesus was taken into the temple, one could look at him and say, I have seen the promise of the Father. You want to understand the story of the Bible? Learn the covenantal structure. Secondly, it teaches us how to read the Bible properly. I'm sure many of you read the Old Testament and you wonder, how does this fit? How am I to read this? From Genesis through to the John's Gospel, the entire storyline from Genesis to John's Gospel is a storyline of pointing to Jesus. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus met two disciples, and they didn't recognize him. And Luke records that when Jesus started talking to them, he told them, things concerning the law and the prophets, meaning he, turned, he told them things concerning the Old Testament, things about himself. In other words, when we read our Old Testament, our spiritual eyes ought to be praying and saying, Lord, show me Christ in this. My own Bible reading uh, schedule, I'm spending time uh, this this week and, and probably into next week in the book of Proverbs. Choose wisdom. Choose wisdom. Choose wisdom. Beloved, who is the personification of all wisdom? When the writer of the Proverbs said wisdom was there at the creation of the world, wisdom was there, who is the writer speaking about? What word was with God and was God at the beginning of the world? The whole book of Proverbs is pointing to one who is Christ, perfect wisdom, perfect truth. When you understand that the new covenant is the fulfillment of all the old, then you know how to read your Bible. You read Joshua's promise that 
if he is careful to obey the word of God and meditate on it day and night in all his ways, he will be prosperous. That doesn't mean you go out and you buy a new vehicle knowing that God's going to pay for it. Or it doesn't mean that you don't pray for health because God's going to heal you like all the other false teaching in the world today. It always means pointing to the new covenant that you will prosper spiritually, that you will become a spiritually prosperous person. There are men and women all over this world that don't have two tunies to rub together who are sacrificing their land and their homes for the sake of Jesus Christ, and they are more spiritually prosperous than many of us here this morning in this room. It teaches you how to interpret the Bible properly when you see Christ and his new covenant within the text of the Old Testament. Thirdly, when you read the Old Testament, you're faced with failure after failure. Most common apologetic question that we get asked by people is pointing to the failures of the Old Covenant. And that's because the entire Old Covenant was waiting for one who would be perfectly obedient on all points. And it was that one who was made the mediator of the new covenant. Hebrews 9.15 says, He is, speaking of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. The new covenant is made with Jesus. We only get benefits from it by being in Christ. Jesus is the one that fulfilled the demands of the covenant. And the writer says, so that all who are called may receive the promise of eternal life. You see, beloved, that when you see the failure of something obvious like David and Bathsheba, you're again brought to this place of saying, there is nobody on, human, on, on earth that I can trust. There's nobody perfect. We are all sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Most of the, the greatest heroes of the Old Testament were failures. Of the book of Judges, my wife's former pastor, Gary Henry, wrote a book, Men of Steel and Feet of Clay. That's where we all are at, feet of clay. But then one would come, his name is Jesus, who perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of the law. And to those who put their faith in him are promised eternal life based on his work and his effort. Four applications. It gives you the storyline. It helps you understand the Old Testament. It reminds you that spiritual perfection can only be found in Christ. And lastly, because of the new covenant, all spiritual 
endeavors for evangelism, evangelism and mission will succeed. I grow weary of hearing the melancholic tones come from some places that, oh my, if we don't do this, the church is going to fail. The church is going to lose. That is not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is that God will save his elect. The message of the Bible is the church will not only survive, but thrive. The message of the Bible is all the promises of Abraham that the entire world will be blessed, will take place, and is taking place today as I speak. And Jesus himself stood up before his disciples and said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The beauty of the new covenant is there is missionary and evangelistic success. So as we spread the gospel, we do with optimism. As we pray for salvation, we do it with optimism, knowing that God's work will succeed. So we gather around the table, and there's so much to celebrate. We could spend hours recounting how much we have to celebrate. But the most significant thing we celebrate is the fact that we gather to celebrate a salvation that is accomplished and has been fulfilled. And there is nothing we have yet to do. We gather with hope. We gather because Christ has defeated sin and death. We gather knowing that the earth will not pass away until all God's purposes are fulfilled. I've had no marginal notes this morning, so here's one. Christians ought to be very concerned about stewardship of the earth. That's God's command to us. We ought to be very concerned about things of environmental importance. But please trust me, this world will not pass away until all God's purposes have been accomplished. And it won't be an earth that self-destroys. It'll be an earth that God remakes. We have lots to celebrate at the table. The great cost of our salvation and the fulfilled and completed promises of God. Pray with me as the worship team comes and leads us in song, I would ask Pastor Josh to come when he's ready. Heavenly Father, you are a God of order. 
You are a God who plans to perfection. And nothing has occurred on this earth that isn't pointing towards the glorification of your Son and the redemption of all your people. In a day when there are an abundance of natural disasters, in a day where there is moral conflict, in a day when governments are failing us one after another, in a day when disease is rampant, in a day when Christianity has been relegated to the back room of discussion, we still have hope because your new covenant made by Jesus for us is still in force. And you will accomplish all that you have intended from this day going forward. You shall reign until all your enemies are placed under your feet, and then the end will come, and not before. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.